sang is true. Uh, we need you more than anything else. And we're here um, to sit at your feet with open ears and open hands to hear your word. And God, I pray for each person in this room today that you, by your spirit, will give us something to take, something to receive. Lord, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as I mentioned a little earlier today, there will be three scripture readings. We heard the first one from Exodus chapter 20. The common thread of the three readings that you'll hear is this word, foolishness. And who likes to be a fool, right? Who likes to be thought foolish? In our Old Testament reading, Exodus chapter 20, God desires to be worshipped. Quite simply, one of the first commandments, no other gods, only me. And how foolish human beings can appear to others when we genuinely obey. And it was God's intention more than 3,000 years ago when he gave the Ten Commandments to Israel to make them a peculiar, holy, different, countercultural, a little bit weird kind of people. And that is exactly what the nations around Israel thought of them. They thought they were a little crazy, maybe even a little unhinged or unstable. That's what people think of you when you live God's way. In our gospel reading from John chapter 2 today, Jesus himself appears not quite well, according to those who would observe him. Because of his commitment to God, because of his love for God, John chapter 2 reads this way. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is what the people did. In the temple courts, Jesus found people selling cattle and sheep and doves, and others were sitting at tables exchanging money. So far, so good. Everybody's going up to the temple, their equivalent of church. Uh, it's more than 2,000 years ago, so, you know, people are sacrificing still. So there's animals for sale, big animals, little animals. Not everybody has the same currency, so there's folks, you know, exchanging money. So far, so good. What could go wrong? Everybody's coming to the temple to worship God. And then, and then he, Jesus, made a whip out of cords can you imagine this? I mean, thank you for no one making a whip today. You're just going up to the temple to mind your own business. Jesus makes a whip out of cords and drove all, all the people, all the kids, all the animals. He drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. I'd like to throw something or but that's not right, is it, in church? What is Jesus doing? He has this incredibly powerful reaction. He is burning with holy anger, and he acts, gentle Jesus, he acts pretty aggressively and powerfully. Rudely? Could we say Jesus is rude here? Oh, man. Jesus reserved some special words and some special frustration to those who sold doves, okay? Because in, uh, in Jewish culture, if you didn't have enough money to make a proper sacrifice, 
of a larger animal, you could spend just your little bit of money that you could afford to buy a small dove. And Jesus was especially angry at the folks who were taking that extra little bit of wealth by overcharging the poorest of the poor for their doves. So Jesus says this, and if you'd read the words of our Lord, which are in yellow, to those who sold doves, Jesus said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Here was the problem according to Jesus. Going to worship wasn't about going to worship anymore. It was about going to the mall. Going to worship wasn't first and foremost about going to worship. It was about logging into Amazon.com. It was becoming a thing of dollars and cents. It was more a thing of making a living, plying a trade, keeping up traditions, and somehow lost in this was putting God above everything else, and this was Jesus' problem. Not the temple itself, not making sacrifices themselves, not people gathering in God's name. It was losing sight that God comes first. And this phrase, quoted from Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. Do we know what zeal is? It's like a passion, a really strong, strong emotion. Psalm 69, around that verse, reads this way. I am a stranger in my own family. I am different from my own mother's children. Zeal for your house consumes me. Those who insult you, God, insult me. When I fast, people scorn me. They make sport and mockery of me. When you put God first, people don't get it, and they think you're different, and they make sport of you. That's why Psalm 69 is quoted right here about Jesus. Zeal consumes him, and everybody thinks he's not quite right. Indeed, Jesus' fellow worshipers, his own countrymen, think he's not quite right, and they demand that he justify himself, that he prove himself, that he give some kind of reason for why he's overturning everything and upsetting everybody. The Jews responded to Jesus, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And then Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied to him, uh, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up again in three days? Jesus does not come off sounding right here. There's a novel that's about 30 years old now called The Pillars of the Earth. It's by a Welsh author named Kenneth Follett. Uh, in it, he talks about uh, a medieval village that is constructing a cathedral, and it traces uh, the lives through generations and generations of the builders, the construction workers, the day laborers. And uh, in medieval times, everybody knew, like if I, as a worker, was laying the early stones of a cathedral, it would be my great, 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 great grandchild who might be putting, you know, the crowning bricks on the top of the cathedral or finishing the spire. It took ages to finish. And this was the attitude of folks back in Jesus' day. I mean, Solomon's temple had been built 500 years ago. It was destroyed. Now it was in the uh, kind of the renovation stage being built back up over nearly 50 years. And people hear Jesus saying, I'm going to build this thing back up in three days. And they think, 
What? This takes decades and centuries. I mean, can you imagine? Do you remember what downtown Manhattan, lower Manhattan, looked like in 2001? The wreckage? I mean, it took more than a year just to clear out the concrete and the debris. Can you imagine if somebody stood in lower Manhattan and said, I'll raise it back up in three days? We would call that person... But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Do you catch this? He's talking about his body. After he was raised from the dead, Jesus' disciples recalled what he had said. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. In the Old Testament, first there was a tabernacle, a tent where the power and the presence of God was located. And then after God's people came to the promised land, there was a temple a permanent structure where the presence and the power of God was located. And now Jesus is saying, for everybody who believed all of that, the day of the temple is passing. And you know where the presence and the power of God are now located? Here I am. What would we call a person who would say something like that? Oh my. This is what Jesus is saying. The presence and the power of God are located in my life, in my flesh and blood. Jesus, in this scene, is overturning more than just the tables, okay? He is overturning a whole way of living with God and living as God's people. If you would, uh, take your hands and hold them out in front of you, palms down. So that's one way. And now we're going to overturn. All right, palms down. And overturn. Back. All right. So when your hands are this way, it's really easy to grab something, to take something, to grasp something, to pull something, to push something. Right? Those are all things that show our... Uh, our strength, our desire, our behavior. But when you overturn your hands, what are you ready for? You're ready to receive something. You're ready to accept something. You're ready to be graced or gifted by something. This is what Jesus is doing. He flips over the tables and he is saying, life with God is now like this. Mm-mm-mm. You know, most languages, the word for Passover and Easter is the same word. The word Pascha, for example, in many European languages. In English, we don't have this. We have Passover and Easter. We lose the connection that Jesus establishes here. We no longer need to go up to Jerusalem like the folks in John chapter 2 did because Jesus flipped everything upside down so that we could receive the eternal Pascha, the eternal Passover, Easter, life with Jesus. Our final reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul recognizes that this message that Jesus demonstrated that I'm trying to share with you today is deemed utterly foolish and ridiculous by the majority of the planet. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, For the message of the cross 
is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate the prophet Isaiah. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law at? Where is the philosopher of the world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? There are two kinds of people, according to this passage, those who are in the process of perishing and those who are in the process of being saved. Do you know what group you are in as you sit here this morning? Amen. I'm hearing kids' voices saying, I know I'm in the process of being saved. Amen. How do you get into group B if you are unsure, into the non-perishing group? Paul says it is about the message of the cross. Now, this message, says Paul, is not just good advice for good people. It's a message not just about God's power, Notice in the third line, he is saying the message of the cross is God's power. That is where we now find the presence and the power of God in the message of Jesus Christ, the message of the cross. And this is foolishness, Paul says to the Corinthian church. And of all the New Testament churches, oh my, my, they're the church that's most like us. A lot of folks with a good education, a lot of folks with pretty good jobs, and they were so confident the Corinthians, that their way was the right way. As I look around the western suburbs, I think, yeah, we're doing pretty decent. Most of us are reasonably confident in how it's going. To the Corinthians and to we Americans, it is foolishness to say that the lowest will become the highest in God's economy of things. It is foolishness to say that the person with the most menial job is going to become the person with the most responsibility in God's kingdom. It is foolishness to say that the servant is going to become the master. And this is exactly what Paul is saying about the message of the cross. Everything gets overturned. Now, when he says foolishness and is kind of poking at the wisdom of the world, Paul is not saying that it's not good to use your brain. He is not giving a message of anti-intellectualism. He is not knocking education. So stay in school, kids. Right? He's not saying drop out of school because it just matters what you believe in your heart and everything else is just a waste of time. That is not what he's saying. Paul is saying that when it comes to the best of human wisdom, the deepest thoughts we can think, as far as we can go, in anything intellectual, scientific, theological, if God is not in it, if it's anti-God intellectual, it's ultimately a religious, uh, a dead end, an eternal dead end if God is not involved in it. Of all the things that we can know, not just with our brains, but that we can know, knowing Jesus is the most important part. And this is why little kids, three-year-old kids at our little lambs can know the most important thing there is to know in the universe. Our tiny children know things that some PhDs, that some seminary graduates, that some super powerful political leaders are missing the boat on. 
Isn't that a foolish idea? I mean, our youngest kids and little lambs are going to have the opportunity uh, to say, I actually believe this story. I believe this message this week. And we believe something eternally significant happens when this kind of knowing happens. Even for our youngest. Success and salvation cannot be grasped or achieved even through the best of our brain power, but must simply be received as a gift. And that's so hard and so foolish for hardworking, overachieving people like us. This passage continues. Jewish folks demand signs, signs of God's power. Greeks, they're looking for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. He's a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, Jews, Greeks, everybody else, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. From a Jewish perspective, the folks were always asking for a sign of God's power. This was asked of in John chapter 2. Jesus, why do you get to do this? Show us a sign that you have the authority to do this. Greeks were always looking for wisdom, brain power, depth. I mean, this is a culture that spawned Plato and Aristotle and the Cynics and the Epicureans and the Stoics and Diogenes. I mean, this was a culture of people thinking super deep thoughts. And Paul says, if you want a sign of power or if you want something of wisdom, I give you a crucified Rural Jew from Nazareth. That's what I got for you. When Paul gives the cross as a symbol for the gospel, it's Paul's shorthand. It's his way of compressing the entire gospel into a single word and statement. When Paul says cross, he means Jesus' incarnation, his birth, his life, his teaching, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God, and our response to all of that. That is what he means by the cross. But Paul was looking for a shorthand symbol for his countrymen that would be the most offensive, countercultural, provocative symbol he could find. And that is why Paul in his preaching settled on Christ crucified to a culture of people that thought the cross was way more horrible than we can get our minds around. Do you know when the first cross appeared in Christian artwork? I mean, if Jesus was crucified in 33 AD, how long did it take Christians to start wearing crosses or painting crosses? Guesses, anybody? It took till the year 400 AD until the first little ivory cross was discovered in the ruin of an old uh, Egyptian church. Almost 400 years passed. Why did no, if Paul is preaching Christ crucified, why is nobody wearing a cross? Why is nobody painting a cross? Because the foolishness and the horror and the pain and the suffering, if you actually witnessed someone being crucified, you would never wear one around your neck. It takes 400 years. Crucifixions were outlawed in the Roman Empire around 320 AD. And then a couple generations after that, until people forgot how brutal 
a person's death on a cross actually was, then we could start painting them. Then we could start wearing them. And Paul says, the heart of my preaching to this culture that is so horrified by the cross is Christ crucified. He is going for the worst, the most countercultural thing he can find. The cross overturns the expectations and preferences of both Jews and Greeks and everybody else, even Americans. I'm going to quote you a few lines from recent preaching in the United States of America. This is not me talking. I'm not going to blame anybody, but this kind of stuff has been said in churches recently. I quote, Nobody plans to fail, but some people fail to plan. There's a little bit of truth in that. It's not quite the gospel. Tough times never last, but you know what lasts? Tough people last. High achievers spot rich opportunities swiftly. They make big decisions quickly, and they move into action immediately. If you follow these principles, you can make your own dreams come true. There might be just a grain of truth in all of those things. <laughs> but as a, trying to follow Paul's footsteps, and as someone who tries to share the gospel of Christ crucified, I would say, um, no. No to all of that. Our culture wants to believe that tr to be true. That if we work hard, if, hey, if you're like your country, young, scrappy, and hungry, you know, you're, you're going to take your shot, it's all going to work out. But we are not saved by power, by reaching, by wealth, by proactive energy. We are saved by receiving the love of God made known to us in the humiliation and the weakness of the cross and in the power of the empty tomb that brought a dead man to life, the same power that is at work in us even today. This is going to sound bad for a second, but for as much as Paul preaches the cross, it is not the cross alone that saves us, right? If all that happened to Jesus was he lived a perfect life and died a tragic death as a totally innocent man, end of story... It's just tragedy. It's just hopelessness. It's just a rotten world. The real gospel is Christ, the perfect Son of God, crucified and then raised back to life because death could not hold him in. Because when true love is given sacrificially, nothing, even the power of death, has power over that kind of life. The tomb could not keep him down. The grave could not hold him. It's the cross and the empty grave. And I would humbly submit to you that if we would desire to be as offensive, as foolish, as provocative, as countercultural in 2018 as Paul wanted to be 2,000 years ago, we would talk more about the empty tomb than about the cross. Because almost everybody in America is willing to accept, hey, Jesus, he was a good guy. He said some great stuff. I don't know that he was perfect, but I mean, the fact that people killed him 2,000 years ago, it shouldn't have been like that. I mean, it shouldn't have ended that way. People will accept Jesus lived and even that Jesus died on a cross. When you start talking about the fact that the power of God raised him from the dead, that's when people start looking at you a little quizzically these days. If Paul were alive, I think he might go around talking about 
the gospel of the empty tomb here today. Of course, it's the cross and the empty tomb, but if we're going for maximum cultural offense, God brought a dead guy back to life. This passage ends with these words. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. Amen. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. For those of us brainy people intent on educating our kids, the one thing we really need to know, the one thing that should penetrate everything that we study and say about everything else is that Jesus lives. <clears throat> if we walk with Jesus into adult life, this is for people who are over the age of 25 now. So if you're a kid, you can shut down for a second. If you are walking with Jesus into adult life, even if you grew up knowing him as a kid, there will come a moment in your adult life, post-age 25, where you think you're doing your thing, it's going well, and something will happen where your life gets flipped upside down. Something difficult, something hard, something that is going to test your abilities. And if you let your life truly, if you don't fight it, if you let your life be flipped upside down, God's grace will be made available for you in some kind of difficulty that you could never have foreseen as a kid or as adolescent, even though some of us had brutal childhood and adolescence. You hear what I'm saying? Anybody can testify about this who's been a grown-up? Kids, I'm sorry to scare you. If you're a kid... You should love Jesus. You should pursue whatever God puts on your heart to study and learn and get good at. You should do all of that. But just be aware in advance, all of us who are grown-ups, that God wrecks us and turns us over at some time. And then he shows up in some deeper way than we could have ever imagined when we were a young person. So Jesus flipped over tables in the temple and in the end, he left us a table. The Oscars are tonight. You know, there's going to be a lot of people in fancy dress, red carpet, million photographs. There is no red carpet here. There's no photographers. The fact that this is happening is not gaining, you know, great attention. I mean, it's just Jesus' table. It's just the miracle of the cross. And a dead man come back to life. It's just the miracle of God giving us simple, foolish signs of his love and presence. It's just Jesus' red blood. It's just his body given for us. That's all. It's foolishness to the world. But it is the wisdom, it is the heart, it is the affection of God for those of us who are in the process of being saved. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that you have given your foolishness to the world. We thank you that you have given your weakness to the world. And we thank you that uh, as those called to be your children that we can come to you with these open hands and receive what is actually the deepest wisdom and the greatest strength. God, as we eat and drink, will you grace us with your presence? Will you encourage our faith? And will you bring us a step closer 
we want to walk with you, Lord Jesus, all the way to the cross and the empty tomb of Easter. In your name we pray, amen.